And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Ariel Sabar to the program today. Ariel is a former newspaper reporter for the Providence Journal, Christian Science Monitor, and the Baltimore Sun. He is currently a freelance journalist, having written for publications such as Smithsonian, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Wall Street Journal. His previous books include My Father's Paradise, A Son's Search for His Jewish Past in Kurdish Iraq, and Heart of the City. Today we'll be discussing his most recent one, Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, which is published by Doubleday. So, Ariel, how did you get the assignment to write about a possible new exciting finding in New Testament scholarship for the Smithsonian Magazine? Well, really, you know, it sort of fell into my lap. I was a relatively new freelancer for Smithsonian Magazine back in 2012. I think I'd filed exactly one story for them that had not been published yet. And so, you know, one day in August of 2012, I, I got a phone call from a top editor at Smithsonian who I had never heard from before. And of course, your greatest fear when you're a new freelancer is that like they didn't like the story you just filed. I thought, you know, maybe I'd blown it, maybe I'd gotten something wrong. But no, this was a out of the blue phone call concerning a completely new story that Smithsonian wanted me to sort of run down. They basically said, look, we've gotten advance word that a scholar at Harvard University is about to make a major announcement in Rome concerning this fragment of papyrus on which Jesus utters the words, my wife. This would be the first time that any ancient manuscript has Jesus sort of saying this phrase, my wife, it would obviously be a blockbuster. We would like you to get on a plane to Boston, interview Dr. Karen King, who is the Harvard scholar, and then follow her to Rome, where she, in a couple of weeks, will make this big announcement at a scholarly conference that literally just steps from the Vatican. What had you been doing before you started freelancing? Well, I had been a, basically a newspaper reporter since getting out of college. Worked at the Providence Journal in Rhode Island for about six years, then moved to the Baltimore Sun. And then after that, I worked for a couple of years at the Christian Science Monitor in their D.C. Bureau covering the 2008 presidential campaigns. I had sort of been a lifelong newspaper reporter, left newspapers to write my first book, My Father's Paradise, which is my father's sort of immigrant journey from this ancient community of Aramaic-speaking Jews in the mountains of Kurdish Iraq to Los Angeles, where I grew up as this kind of consummate L.A. kid, skateboarder, played drums in a rock band, boogie boarded. Only after I had my own son did I decide to go back and tell the sort of immigrant story of a father that I never really got along with as a kid. So I'd written a couple other books and had moved on to freelance journalism after having been a, a newspaper reporter for many years. Jesus was to have spoken Aramaic when he was alive. Did your father teach you any of the language when you were growing up? Just sort of baby phrases here and there. I mean, he had devoted his career to at UCLA, where he's a professor of Near Eastern languages. He had devoted his career to kind of documenting his own dying mother tongue. And this was the 3,000-year-old language of Aramaic. It had once been the lingua franca of the entire Middle East. And now was literally in its last generation of speakers. So, you know, a few phrases here and there. But, you know, I think my father was realistic in, in the sense that, like, it was better for us to, like, learn Hebrew at Hebrew Day School, which might have some practical applications rather than Aramaic, where you'd be only be able to speak to, like, you know, a few very elderly people and not for much longer. So we've learned about your first contact with story. Let's hear about first contact for Dr. Karen King. How did she first hear about this manuscript fragment? Right. So um, in July of 2010, um, she gets an email uh, out of the blue from an individual who identifies himself as a manuscript collector. And he says, I've got 15 fragments of papyrus in the language of Coptic. Now, for listeners who may not know what Coptic is, Coptic is an ancient Egyptian tongue. It is the last phase of the Egyptian language and is important because it's the language of Egypt's earliest Christians. And a lot of the oldest surviving copies of the Gospels survive in the language of Coptic. And the reason is simple, is that Egypt had a very dry climate. And so copies of the gospel that were written on papyrus and that stayed in Egypt, often buried in the sand because they were, they were thrown out for, for one reason or another, survived uh, the centuries, whereas copies uh, of the gospels on papyrus in other parts of the world, wetter parts of the world, sort of turned to mush or pulp. So he has 15 Coptic papyrus fragments, and he wants Dr. King to take a look at a couple of them because according to a translation that he says came with his acquisition of these papyri, one of the fragments contained a conversation between Jesus and the disciples over a Mary. You know, I remember asking Dr. King at the time, who is this individual? And she said, well, I can't tell you. He asked for anonymity, not able to say who he is. And, and I, you know, I, as a journalist, of course, I was interested in, in who her sources were because 
sources matter in, in journalism. She just wasn't able to say beyond saying simply that he was a complete stranger. He was not a well-known collector. He was not someone she had previous contact with. A literally complete out of the blue email that arrives one day in her inbox requesting her help with this very small fragment of papyrus that's about the size of a business card. She had studied the unofficial gospel of Mary. It was very important to her work. So this seems like it'd be perfect for her to look at. It really was right up her alley. There were a few scholars in the world who would be more qualified or more interested, importantly, in seeing a new fragment, maybe a previously unknown fragment of a non-canonical gospel. By that sort of, you know, multisyllabic word, I mean gospels from early Christianity that did not make it in to the authorized list of Christian texts that we now call the New Testament. And so she was an expert in these. She was the right person to go to because much of her scholarship had centered on non-canonical texts like the Gospel of Mary, in which female figures, particularly Mary Magdalene, plays a much more prominent and important role than she does in the four Gospels that most believers are familiar with from the New Testament. How do these Gnostic Gospels play into the history of the New Testament? Well, I think their discovery was um, watershed when they began essentially emerging from the sands of Egypt with the advent of archaeology. So in the past you know, 150 years or so, archaeologists, sometimes just peasants digging around in the sand would, would find these so-called forgotten gospels or lost gospels that had effectively been suppressed by the heresy hunters in early Christianity. They'd been sort of blotted out. Archaeology sort of was able to kind of bring them up again out of the sand and bring them into the consciousness and the public imagination. And what they did for scholars of Christianity was open up this window into the many ways in which early Christians were thinking about and debating the meaning of Jesus's life and his teachings. And it turns out there were a lot of debates going on. The story handed down to modernity through sort of official channels by the church was not the only story of Christianity. And what you wind up discovering is that there were these other traditions in which various characters in the Gospels and Scripture have more or less prominent roles, do different things than we wind up seeing in the New Testament Gospel. So it, it offers this really fascinating window into the kinds of stories Christian believers of every stripe were telling about Jesus in the 200 to 400 years after he's said to have lived. It seems there are people out there who want so much for there to be an incompleteness in the New Testament. And in King's case, that women have been sidelined and made second class by men who may have suppressed these original scriptures. Did she ever worry that kind of her own confirmation bias might be affecting the way she was approaching this topic? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I'd like readers of Veritas, my book, to sort of look at the evidence and, and sort of decide for themselves why it was that Dr. King became so interested in sort of publicizing this papyrus fragment, even though there were many doubts about it, which I, which I assume we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's a good question. I mean, I think all of us, when we're presented with a piece of evidence that seems like the missing puzzle piece in a puzzle we've been trying to solve our entire lives, might not sort of look that gift horse in the mouth. Because it seems to say something that we've always felt should be true, Sometimes we lower our guard, and I think any one of us could be vulnerable to that. So I think that's a question I'd like readers to answer for themselves when they read through the evidence in the book. And you do go to her background. She grew up in Montana, and it seemed like she valued being an iconoclast from a very young age. That's true. I mean, she grew up this sort of really brainy intellectual kid in a small town in southwest Montana, cattle ranching country. The value of kind of self-reliance was, was, was huge there. You know, it was a place where you didn't show a lot of vulnerability. And she was really someone who really knew her own mind and had her own ideas about what Christianity was and should be. And when you're in a small town and you think differently than other folks, it can be kind of stigmatizing. And I think for her, the questions that she developed as a child, being a different kind of Christian believer in a way than many of the other folks in her town, made her attuned to the way in which people who think they are right-thinking Christians can alienate and undermine people who have different ways of conceiving the meanings of, of Jesus's life and how they want to engage their own relationship with God. And so for her, these questions came very, very early in her life. It's amazing how we each individually have the perfect way to do it, that we, we know the right way. Right, right. I mean, I think that a big part of her scholarship is that orthodoxy is kind of poisonous. Of course, the orthodox and evangelicals will take a very, very different view of this. I don't come down one way or another, but I think I'm Jewish, just full, full disclosure here, so I don't really have a dog in the fight. But I think, you know, certainly the way in which 
people have used the rhetoric of orthodoxy to sort of exclude other voices, not only in antiquity, but even today. Jesus was an Aramaic-speaking Jewish person in the Middle East, so, you know, you at least could stick up for one of <laughs> your fellow right. tribesmen. Well, sure. I, my father does speak Aramaic, and so there is that, there absolutely is that connection. <laughs> she studied with Dr. John Turner in Montana. How did he help shape her view of studying Christianity? Yeah, Dr. John Turner was a very important scholar of the so-called Gnostic Gospels, she had been on a pre-med track at the University of Montana in the 70s when one day she wanders into uh, Dr. John Turner's class on Gnosticism. And it just sort of blows her mind. I mean, it's like this whole different way of, of thinking about what Christianity could mean and what it did mean for a certain group of believers in the second to fourth centuries AD. And I think she felt a really kind of personal bond with these Gnostic texts, and she really wanted to understand what they were saying and how they were saying it. That class that she took with John Turner was, was kind of a turning point in her life and in her career because she dropped the pre-med track and she said, I need to do religious studies as a major. This is where, this is where my passion lies. There's the term operational effectiveness. What does that mean? So operational effectiveness actually is tied to, to one of Dr. Turner's colleagues at the University of Montana, a scholar named Robert Funk who was the founder of a very well-known, got a lot of coverage, I think especially in the 80s, of a public project known as the Jesus Seminar. And folks who may have followed this will, will know what this is, but folks who haven't, it's probably fairly uh, foreign. But the Jesus Seminar was an effort by a group of biblical scholars to come together and to evaluate in a kind of a more scientific way, which of the sayings, which of Jesus's sayings and teachings in the Gospels were things that the historical Jesus actually said, and which were things that were sort of add-ons by later editors and, and revisers of the Gospels. So understandably, this was a very controversial project. You know, you have biblical scholars coming in and telling clergy and the Catholic Church and evangelicals what parts of the New Testament are, are sort of like bogus. But it was very popular. It was very controversial. And what they wanted to do was to sort of knock down the wall between the ivory tower and the church to sort of bring the insights of secular biblical scholarship into the pews so that worshipers would have, again, would have different ways of thinking about how the Bible was written, how certain choices were made about which books got to be in the authorized canon and which, which books were included. And one of Dr. Funk's terms is the idea of operational effectiveness, which is, are there stories that we can tell to believers that will really get them thinking about the questions we want them to think about? I mean, a soundbite would be, would be too simple, but are there ideas that, that are so resonant, that are so compelling, that even if in some ways they aren't completely true, in the sense of historically true, they can get believers thinking the right kinds of thoughts about the complexity and the diversity of early Christianity? It's more of a, a narrative truth than a, a factual truth. Yeah, well put, yes. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of the, the old saw, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Certainly. And I think that the Jesus Seminar would say that the authorized Bible is also just a very good story. It's also an instance of facts not getting in the way of a good story. So I think the way that uh, Dr. Funk put it is that we need to tell a better story, one that sort of redirects and reimagines the story that most people are familiar with from, you know, their television sets, from televangelists, from the sermons they hear at, from the pulpit and the lessons they're getting in, in, in a kind of traditional uh, Sunday school. Now, I see that Dr. Turner passed away last year. Did you get to speak to him for the writing of the book? I did. I feel really fortunate about that. I was able to buttonhole him at a conference at the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the largest gathering of biblical scholars, a few years before he passed away. And we did have an interview, classic John Turner interview out on a balcony. He was chain smoking and, you know, in his very gruff voice, was able to share some of his memories of his days as Dr. Karen King's undergraduate teacher. Now, she got a job right out of the graduate program at Occidental College on the Pacific Coast, how did she make the jump to Harvard Divinity School? Well, she spent you know, a number of years, you know, at least I think 12 or 13 years at Occidental College, which is very well known for its teaching. And she had gotten a fellowship from Harvard Divinity School in the mid-90s. There's a fellowship Harvard offers for scholars working at the intersection of uh, women's studies and uh, biblical scholarship. And so she was one of, I think, four or five scholars who received the fellowship that year. And she apparently made a very good impression. She taught a class on Mary Magdalene and on the Gospel of Mary. She was working on 
the book that would sort of make her famous, The Gospel of Mary of Magdala. And so I think that that made an impression at Harvard Divinity School, which at the time, immediately after she left the fellowship, posted a job, basically posted a job vacancy that was almost a perfect fit <laughs> for, for, for Dr. King's qualifications. Some of the women faculty at the Divinity School said, you know, Dr. King, you should really apply. That's how she came to their attention. Now, I think she only had one book to her credit at that time when she was hired by Harvard, and it was published by a press she had a financial interest in. Correct. So when she first applied for the job, she had no books to her name. Um, this was 12 years out of graduate school. You know, and again, at Occidental College, the focus is on, on teaching. She had won many teaching awards. She had certainly published articles and encyclopedia entries and edited some books, but she hadn't actually written a book, which was somewhat unusual for a historian. So after applying for the Harvard job for the first time, she was able to publish her now 12-year-old PhD dissertation with a small press in Montana that she helped sort of provide startup money for, and then also sat on the board of. That's correct. Some might see this as a conflict of interest, and this won't be the last one of those that we see during the course of the story. Sure. I mean, you know, that's for other people to say, but I mean, certainly putting a, a book into press just sort of in the nick of time when you need one to qualify for a job with a press that you are so intimately connected to, you know, could certainly raise some questions. When she was first offered this fragment that has the phrase, my wife, supposedly spoken by Jesus, why did she pass on it the first time around? I think she was very clear that the first time around, she believed that the manuscript was a forgery. She thought it was too good to be true. I mean, the field of archaeology, the field of biblical studies has been a target of hoaxes before. If you can fake a text that someone believes was once part of the Bible, you can wreak all kinds of havoc and you can make money if you have something that's rare. You know, certainly archaeologists and people in biblical studies have been on the lookout and, and should have their antenna up at all times for people who are trying to prank them in one way or another, or to use the credibility of an institution like Harvard to kind of confer legitimacy to either a fake manuscript or an illegally looted manuscript. And now, of course, in the time we live in, you know, with war raging a conflict in the Middle East, there are bad actors out there who are digging up and stealing antiquities that enter the United States illegally and, you know, are being given value by scholars who decide to publish them. And so she was suspicious and then she sort of blew them off at first because she thought this thing was a fake. What are the laws right now regarding taking cultural historical objects from one country and transferring it to another? There's sort of a patchwork of laws, and, and part of it depends on what kinds of treaties the United States has with individual countries. But in a sort of general sense, the thinking is that anything whose provenance cannot be documented as having left the country before 1970 should probably be returned to that country. This is because of a UN treaty that was passed around that time dealing with cultural artifacts. Now, U.S. has stronger relationships with some countries than others. They have specific treaties uh, that with, with modifications to those terms, uh, depending on what country we're talking about. But generally speaking, if you can't trace the provenance back before 1970 and you can't show that you had it or that a collection had it out before then, then the presumption is, is that it's eluded or that it left the country illegally. A little while later, after the first contact with the owner of the manuscript, he contacts her again. And it seems that his knowledge about the manuscript fragment seems to increase just a little bit over that time. Yeah, you have to look carefully at the emails they exchanged, and I was able to obtain the emails between Dr. King and the collector. Actually, Dr. King, during the reporting of my Smithsonian piece, so we, after I requested a number of times, was willing to give me those emails, however, with all the identifying details taken out. So I didn't know the guy's name. I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know what he did for a living. I didn't know his email address. All those things were stripped out by Dr. King. But I was interested in this kind of mating dance between collector and, prom and prominent scholar. And so I was able to look at these emails. And when he first writes to her, he claims he has no knowledge of Coptic, that he's just this clueless collector. He's got no idea what he's got. And then, you know, after she kind of blows him off, this is a few months later when she finally blows him off, he comes back all of a sudden knowing all kinds of things about this papyrus that his previous persona would suggest he did not. And so, you know, looking at these emails and their evolution closely, you realize that you're dealing with the sort of somewhat slippery character here. She decides to investigate the fragments further. She has more of a feeling that they might be authentic. So how does she go about trying to ascertain whether that's true or not? That's another mystery. Readers have to can sort of figure out for themselves. But at one point, four months after she essentially blows off the collector 
telling him, I'm not interested, you know, I, I can't really help you. She suddenly changes her mind and she sends him this long email saying, really like to publish this thing. We need to get it looked at by some paparologists and I can even arrange for it to be stored at Harvard University. It's like there's a 180 degree turn that she makes even before consulting experts. And it's really a mystery. And I don't want to sort of give away any spoilers here because this comes at the end of the book, but readers will learn things for the first time about what precedes this 180 degree turn on Dr. Karen King's part. But after she makes that 180 degree turn, one of her former students who had studied papyrology or the study of papyri takes a look at it. She thinks that it could be real, it could be authentic. Her former student, who now Professor Princeton, then takes it to one of the leading scholars of papyrology in the world, uh, Dr. Roger Bagnall at uh, New York University. He also believes that while there are certain things that are certainly weird about the papyrus, the, the handwriting is really ugly. There are problems with the look of the ink. He uses this logic that, is, that I sort of talk about in the book. It was like, it's so bad that it's got to be authentic. Like the handwriting is, is so awful and there are so many problems with it that if, it, if there were a forger who really knew what they were doing, they would never produce anything this ugly. Therefore, it has a good chance of being authentic. And so based on those sorts of findings, Dr. King decides that she's willing to go forward with publishing this thing and announcing it at the scholarly conference in Rome in September of 2012. And it was striking that at the beginning of the session, he had several other scholars over at his apartment for a meeting that initially when they looked at it, they thought it was forged, but then they kind of talked themselves into it. So it seems like there's this repeating of what Dr. King went through, initially skeptical, and then kind of talking themselves into it. Exactly. But on the basis of what turns out to be not a whole lot of first-time examining the papyrus. One of the things that I talked about with Dr. Bagnall while reporting the book, I said, yeah, how much, how much time did you spend physically examining the papyrus? And he said, it was about an hour. And if you know anything about papyrology, that's really not a lot of time. And Dr. Bagnall would be the first to say that. He never published anything himself on the papyrus. He met with Dr. Karen King and her former student, Princeton professor, for about an hour at his office back in 2012. They looked it over together. And on that basis, he thought, you know, this looks okay. But later on in the story, when other papyrologists who specialized specifically in Christian Coptic papyri spent something like 10 to 12 hours with the papyrus, that's when they began discovering all these other problems. Unfortunately, those examinations didn't happen until after Dr. King made her presentation in Rome. Right before her presentation in Rome, she had submitted an article to the Harvard Theological Review, and it's a peer-reviewed journal. As you said, it was a double-blind, so neither side knows the identity of the writer or the reviewer. And it wasn't the positive experience that she was hoping for. No, um, this was interesting because I traveled to Cambridge to interview Dr. King uh, in early September for the Smithsonian piece, a little bit before she announced. And she had just gotten back one of these negative peer reviews a couple hours before our meeting. And I remember she was very, very shaken by it because it was such a damning report. It raised all kinds of questions about the grammar, the provenance, the handwriting, the apparent copying of certain phrases from other gospels that some strangely appear in this one. It really sort of threw her for a loop. And so the Harvard Theological Review, as you said, you know, sent out requests to peer reviewers, which is a very common practice at high-level journals. And two of the three peer reviews come back saying, this looks like a fake. You'll embarrass yourself if you publish this. So you have a majority of the peer reviewers saying, basically, don't do this. Or if you do, you need to do a lot more homework because at first sight, this thing looks really problematic. Is it common for professors to submit to journals from their own institutions? That would be a question to ask to scholars. It certainly suggests a certain kind of insularity that you're basically asking members of your own team who you have to see in the office every day, essentially, some of whom aren't even as high ranking as you are, to pass judgment on your own work. And in retrospect, some scholars I've spoken to said even that was sort of problematic, that if you have something this sensational, as tempting as it is to kind of try to handle it in-house, sometimes it's a good idea to let a little bit more oxygen into the room because you really want to have people who may, may not even like you take a look at this so that you make sure you know that people fire all their best shots before you go public. And in this case, you know, whether people in your own department who edit the Harvard Theological Review, it's a very, very well-respected century-old journal, top scholars edited it, but the editors are members of the faculty of the Harvard Divinity School. And so they're colleagues of, of Dr. King. And so whether that led them to pull some punches or not ask quite as sharp questions as they might have, 
that's something scholars have, have certainly raised. Sorry, this is a, a weird analogy, but in the world of drag racing, there's a thing called sandbagging where you don't try particularly hard when you're qualifying and then you put on full power during a race. So you kind of have an advantage there, people underestimating you. And it seems like she did that with a conference in that she really kind of held back on what information she was going to be revealing at the conference. She very much underplayed what she was going to be saying. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that happened in Rome was that none of the scholars in the room, when she presented her paper, 36 scholars in the room, not, not a bad turnout, but it had a very bland title, something like a new Coptic gospel fragment. And so people didn't really know what to expect. New fragments do turn up from time to time. New fragments in Coptic turn up from time to time. And they're the kinds of things that get announced at this quadrennial. So the conference happens every four years of Coptic studies. And so some people thought, okay, maybe this is a new Coptic fragment of something we've, we've heard of before. You know, maybe it's the Gospel of John. Maybe it's some other scripture that has been previously documented. These fragments are still interesting, don't get me wrong. But there was no sense that there's going to be like a Gospel of Jesus as well. And I think to some extent, in, in Dr. King's defense, she didn't want word of this to leak before her paper. You know, she was willing to discuss it with a few journalists ahead of time, including me for the Smithsonian Magazine and including the top religion correspondents for the New York Times and the Boston Globe. So she kind of did bring a few journalists on in early in her telling because she knew that there was a possibility that less esteemed journalistic outlets would sort of immediately sensationalize it. She wanted sort of smart reporters to come in early so she could really explain to them the context and sort of frame this in the right way. She wanted people to know this was never evidence that the historic Jesus had a wife. It was not biography. It was simply evidence that some group of early Christians, possibly as early as the second century, believed, for whatever reason, for their own reasons, because they thought so, that Jesus was married. And so she really wanted that message to come out. That was her explanation for why she met with journalists ahead of time. And you know, other people would raise you know, more self-interested reasons for doing that. I'm in no position to judge because I was one of the journalists who had access early. So in a sense, yes, she did not show her hand before she came to the conference. But once she was at the conference, she did present her findings and also faced immediate pushback from the, you know, the senior scholars in her field. So you were in the room as she gave the talk. What was the reaction like in the room at that time? I mean, immediately there were questions. She spoke for about 25 minutes and then there was a Q&A. And, you know, again, reminding you here, these are the very top scholars in the language, the culture, the religion of Egypt's early Christians. So you're not talking about hacks here. You're talking about like the best people in the world. And, you know, Dr. King was in that category, but so were the other people in the room. And colleagues were mystified. They had all kinds of questions, really initially about her interpretation of the text. They weren't sure that it said what she thought it said. And part of the reason was that it's a fragment. So you have eight lines, brief lines of Coptic, all of which are incomplete. Okay, so when I say a fragment, I mean, literally, it's a fragment that's been cut out or broken off from presumably what was once a larger page. So we don't know what comes before it. We don't know what comes to the right or left of these broken off lines, and we don't know what comes after it. So it's almost like a Mad Lib where, you know, a good scholar has to decide what the missing words say. So for instance, the very famous line that says, Jesus said to them, my wife, we don't know what follows after my wife. We do know that on the next line, Jesus appears to still be speaking and then says, she is able to be my disciple. So in, in the course of two lines, you have Jesus speaking of an apparent wife who he appears to be defending against people who are questioning her worthiness as a disciple and that Jesus is then defending her saying, she is able to be my disciple. So it's saying a lot of things in, the, in a very short space. And at the conference, most of the questions being asked were, are you sure that you're reinterpreting this correctly? How do we know that this is Mary Magdalene? How do we know that conceptually you could say, my wife, I don't have a wife, or my wife is the church. None of those things are, are particularly clear. And one of the reasons that the initial pushback focused on the interpretation was that Dr. King did not present a photograph of the papyrus during a presentation, which a lot of the scholars in, in the room found to be a real problem because when you're evaluating the authenticity of a new manuscript, the look of it is really important. And the text is great. It's nice to have the text. You can do all kinds of fun interpretation, interesting interpretation. But first, you have to decide whether it's real or not. And so Dr. King did not present a photograph with her presentation, which angered some of the scholars in the room. She had told me that her laptop had broken on the flight from Boston to Rome. I have no reason to question that. 
But she had three days in between her arrival in Rome and her presentation. Harvard had tons of images of the papyrus on their servers. They could have easily emailed her one. Her own colleague, the Princeton colleague, had images of the papyrus on her computer. She was in the room. Dr. King could have gotten images from his colleague, but did not. And so I'll leave it to readers to decide, but there's certainly the effect of that is clear, which is that the response in the room is going to be focused on whether she interpreted it correctly, not in some ways on the more foundational question of whether the papyrus itself was authentic. When this information gets out to the public, and you're one of the people that helped spread this information with doing a, a magazine article for Smithsonian about it, what was the reaction like from, say, the lay world and the ecclesiastical world? It was as divided as the lay world and the ecclesiastical world are, even, even among themselves. You know, certainly among the Orthodox, among Roman Catholic Church, evangelicals, were very, very, you know, quick to say, this is nonsense, this isn't real. I think the, the Vatican called it an inept forgery, you know, within a week or so. Others tried to sort of spin it away saying, well, you know, early Christians said all kinds of things about Jesus. It doesn't mean it, it means much. We've been aware of these non-canonical gospels for a long time. Just because some random person in antiquity said something, it doesn't mean it had any kind of theological authority. On the other hand, you had ordinary folks, and I, and I quote some of them in the book, who were really excited. Progressive Christians, other folks who said, you know, I really like this idea of a married Jesus, you know, that why shouldn't Jesus, who is all about love, also have, have a wife? You know, this is a Jesus for our times. And this was coming at a time when the question of women's ordination was very big. The question of same-sex marriage it was very important and, and continues to be. And so all of these questions that were very much being debated as policy questions, as cultural questions in our own moment, this text seemed to speak to in important ways for folks who really said, this makes sense. This is the kind of Jesus I'd like to see. And it's nice to know that there might be evidence of this kind of, of Jesus. And then you'd have secular scholars saying, you know, look, this is really interesting. It's the first time we have apparent evidence of Jesus speaking the words, my wife. But, you know, there are other texts, non-canonical texts that have shown a close relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, not a physical one, not one of marriage, but sort of a spiritual relationship. And because we don't have the whole thing we can't really say for sure exactly what's being said. Or even the great scholar of the Gnostic Gospels, Elaine Pagels, famous for her 1979 book, The Gnostic Gospels, which really introduced these Gospels to the public for the first time. She's a MacArthur Genius Award winner, said, it's an interesting text if it's authentic, but I don't know why Dr. King called it a gospel. There's nothing in this that suggested it merits the category of gospel. You know, it could be a dialogue text. It could be a vision text. Even the top people in her field, a scholar who had co-written a book with Dr. King about the gospel of Judas and other non-canonical texts said, even if this is authentic, I'm not sure it's, it's a gospel. And I'm not sure why Dr. King would have chosen such a, a sort of sensational word for what it is when there really isn't evidence within the text that it belongs in that category. There are people out there who have studied Coptic and these papyrus fragments over the years. And it's not a huge community, but I mean, they're very interested and very in-depth on this stuff. How do Andrew Bernhard and Mike Grondon fit into the story? One of the things that was interesting about the story is the way in which the influence of universities with the prestige and the power of Harvard University. I mean, there's no richer, more powerful university in the world. And so when Harvard says something, people listen. And so if you have something to say back to Harvard, it can be like kind of shouting into a void. One of the interesting subplots in the story is the way in which scholars began uncovering, like seriously uncovering, not, not the knee-jerk reactions, which were influenced by people's ideological commitments and dogma, but the real serious scholarship that started to document in a painstaking way where the evidence of forgery might be in this fragment. And one of the figures I focus on in the book is a relatively young guy named Andrew Bernhard, lives in Portland, Oregon, has held a series of jobs from like real estate broker to software marketer to data IT analyst. He has a master's degree from Oxford, really smart guy, but never went into academia, but published a well-respected book on the non-canonical Greek gospels before the age of 30. So kind of really smart guy, just decided not to go into academia for his own personal reasons, not because he couldn't, just didn't think there was a white lifestyle for him. So he becomes kind of obsessed with the gospel of Jesus' wife. And at first is like really excited about it because he's like, this is great. There's another non-canonical gospel people can start reading and thinking about. But he starts to have some questions. And one of the questions he, he has is this fragment looks like it's repeating certain phrases from another apocryphal text known as the gospel of Thomas. 
And for viewers or listeners who aren't, aren't aware what the Gospel of Thomas is, it's a text that some scholars believe was written as early as the first century, maybe the second century. It's basically a list of 114 sayings of Jesus, secret sayings of Jesus, essentially, that Jesus is said to have spoken to someone named Didymus Thomas. Some of these sayings do recur in the canonical gospel, some of them don't. So it looked to Andrew Bernhard and a couple other scholars early on as though the phrases in the gospel of Jesus' wife were cut from the Gospel of Thomas, put in a different order, strategically, to say something new that sounded like something old. And when they started taking a closer look, they realized that essentially every single phrase in the Gospel of Jesus' wife could be traced to the Gospel of Thomas with the exception of two words, my wife. So it was a really clever, in their estimation, kind of cut and paste job, taking phrases in random places strategically from the Gospel of Thomas and then recycling them to say something new in the Gospel of Jesus' wife. You asked about the second gentleman, Mike Grondon. Why is he important? Well, Mike Grondon is a retired computer programmer living out his retirement in Macomb, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. And he's super fascinated in the Gospel of Thomas. He believes that there must be sort of secret codes, secret messages embedded in the Coptic text of the Gospel of Thomas. And so it's kind of a retirement project, even though he's not a trained scholar of Coptic. He produced what's known as an interlinear translation of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. An interlinear translation is one in which lines of text in its original foreign language appear directly above or below the same text in English translation. So you have literally like a word-for-word -word correspondence, like, oh, this phrase means this in English, this phrase means this in English. It's very, very easy to see the connection. And it turns out that Mike Grondon's interlinear translation, which Mike Grondon posted to his Gospel of Thomas website, is the only such interlinear translation on the web. I think, I think maybe at that time, the only one in existence of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. So immediately, you know, Andrew Bernhard, the scholar in Oregon, is like thinking, well, if this is a cut and paste, it means that whoever did it had a basic grasp of Coptic, but not a great one. Because if they had a great grasp of Coptic, they could write the whole thing from scratch on their own. They wouldn't need to like crib from the Gospel of Thomas to make it work. They wouldn't need to. They'd be smart enough. So if you were someone who would say studied Coptic for a semester or two, but didn't have a great grasp on it, what would you need to do to basically reverse engineer these phrases? And he's like, well, clearly you'd need an interlinear translation. And he immediately remembered that Mike Grondon was the only guy who had ever done an interlinear translation of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. Andrew goes to Mike Grondon's website. He downloads Mike Grondon's PDF, interlinear translation of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. And as he's going through it, he realizes that Mike Grondon, in transcribing the Coptic Gospel of Thomas into a Microsoft Word file, has made a mistake. He has failed to transcribe one of the Coptic letters from the original Coptic Gospel of Thomas. And what sort of immediately almost gets Andrew to fall out of his chair is when he notices that, that Mike Grondon's typographical error in a 2002 PDF of the Gospel of Thomas also appears in what is supposedly the ancient handwriting of the Gospel of Jesus' wife. And this sort of a replication of a 2002 typo in what's supposed to be a 4th century text is a problem for obvious reasons. And also Grondon had some idiosyncratic translations that didn't appear anywhere else. So it's almost kind of like how map makers put what they call a trap street in there to keep people from reproducing their maps. Exactly. Exactly. How in the heck does Hobby Lobby get involved in all this? Well, I mean, this is interesting because Hobby Lobby, you know, which is the very successful arts and craft chain across the country, the owners of Hobby Lobby are evangelical billionaires who are very interested in telling their own story of Christianity. And it's kind of like the opposite story. You take Dr. King's story, which is about diversity, complexity, all these different voices that were suppressed. The evangelical owners of Hobby Lobby, the Green family, have been very interested in telling a sort of a different story about the history of Christianity, one that basically treats the canonical Bible as the unfiltered word of God and as inerrant, as sort of as valid as history. And so the Greens began in 2009, spending millions of dollars collecting biblical artifacts and manuscripts from around the world for what would become the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which opened back in 2017. The idea was to inspire museum goers to view the Bible, in some sense, as historically true. I mean, I'm simplifying here a little bit, but that's basically the mission. There's all kinds of interesting artifacts they've acquired, 
And interestingly enough, here's another example, and I talk about this in the book, and I've also written about this for The Atlantic Magazine, of another group of folks who believed a little too unwaveringly in their version of the history of Christianity, and uncritically. And so they too were scammed by fraudsters and forgers. They acquired uh, Dead Sea Scroll fragments that turned out to be fake. They're now having to return thousands of artifacts to Egypt and Iraq that were looted, illegally looted. The interesting intersection with the Gospel of Jesus' wife story is that one of the scholars, a Coptic scholar who they recruited to work on the museum, also wound up finding problems and evidence of forgery in the Gospel of Jesus' wife. The Gospel of Jesus' wife wound up becoming this like proxy battle for all these bigger fights happening in the world of Christian scholarship. So you have this, you know, eight lines of Coptic, and you have this wealthy evangelical family that has their own scholars who are also looking at it. And then you have Harvard University, and they're fighting over, to some extent, whether this fragment could be real. And to me, it's, it's again, what's interesting about this, I like to repeat, is that nothing in this book should be taken on a knock against, you know, feminist scholarship or the study of women in the Bible. It's not about that. It's a very discreet case involving one individual who had done a lot of, you know, very good work in this field, but in this one instance, sort of let her guard down and allowed sort of a bad piece of evidence through the filters that normally work in academia. And that's part of what makes the case so fascinating for me is how did this one get through? Why this exception? What went wrong in this case that something so sensational and so badly forged, according to experts, could get through some of the top scholars in the country? I counterbalance that with the, with the story of the Green family, because this shows that it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, sort of a, an evangelical man with tons of money to spend building a museum or a progressive uh, Christian scholar at the Harvard Divinity School. Anyone who doesn't look critically enough at their own belief system and the way that belief system can skew their assessment of the facts can be preyed on by clever fraudsters and forgers. And I think that's why your choice of the title Veritas is such a wonderful one because it is the motto of Harvard University, but so many people trying to find their own versions of truth ignore what's in front of their eyes. The word Veritas in the title is not just sort of like a marketing gimmick, right? It's not like, hey, this is the motto of Veritas. Let's, let's slap this on the cover of the book. It really speaks to this question of what is the nature of truth in the context of religion? In other words, when we speak of truth in the context of religion, does it have to be something that you can scientifically footnote? Does it need to be the same as history? Or can it be kind of a spiritual truth that you possess inside of you? And can that truth be different from one person to the next? I think where things get complicated is where the, the spiritual truths that, that may be very personal or individual or, or that are part of the faith tradition of a particular community, when those people go out seeking facts or sort of historical facts to support what are in, in effect kind of theological truths or beliefs, in my view, that people disagree with me, I'm sure, that's when you can start to get in trouble. And so what fascinated me in the course of reporting the book is what are the different paths, different professions, and different thinkers use to approach the truth? And as a journalist, you know, I'll be the first to, the, to admit I'm an empiricist. I believe that there are knowable truths and discernible truths and facts out in the world that one can ascertain by reporting, by looking at documents, by talking to people, by doing archival research. We may not get the facts right the first time. We may have to you know, correct them. We may have to reevaluate them. But we're marching towards a version of the truth that can be verified out in the world. And I think for the devout, certainly, there are truths that they accept on faith. That's what the nature of faith is, the acceptance of things unseen or unproven. And that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's what makes faith so magical in a way. We don't need to footnote it, right? And then I think you have in this sort of third camp that I think Dr. Karen King and other scholars of Ilk belong in, is this kind of postmodern view of reality in which there are no such thing as facts. We all have our own truths. It all depends on where in the room you're standing. And the reality is created by whoever is sort of shouting the loudest, who has the best story to tell, who has the best narrative, as you put it earlier. And so what fascinates me is like what happens when all of those different ways of approaching truth kind of getting tangled and snagged in the same institution, even within the same individual. I mean, I'll make it clear. Karen King is a believer. There are people who will try to write her off as somebody who's trying to take down Christianity. That is, that's not fair and that's not true. She's a Christian believer, but she is also someone who believes that good faith comes from good history. That's a really interesting idea. And I think one that people would debate. Do you need good history to have good faith? 
those are some of the questions that animated me and that I address and try to get readers to wrestle with at the end of the book. Now, when she sees that people out there are showing that there are these possible flaws in the manuscript in which the grammar doesn't quite match up, that the, it seems to be reproduced mistakes from a, a later text from the 21st century, how does she respond to these things that go against her belief that the manuscript is real? She tries to plug holes in her arguments. So there's two years that pass between her announcement in Rome and her publication of the article. So the pushback to the article created a lot of problems. She had not done any scientific testing before she went public. She had not consulted experts in Coptic Irie before going public. So now there was like, even the Harvard Theological Review was like, wait a second, we're not publishing anything right now. You need to go do some scientific testing. You need to spend more time thinking through some of these objections folks have raised. She sort of swats away a lot of the objections. She finds like a few very rare instances of this type, what, what Andrew Bernhardt thought of it as a typo, but she said, well, you know, there are all these one or two manuscripts from antiquity where that's not a typo, it's just a grammatical error or formation that we really don't have a lot of evidence of, but she went out and found a few examples. They weren't from scriptural texts, they were from other texts. So she found ways to sort of like identify places where the arguments for critics weren't as solid as her critics believed they were. And then she also winds up doing scientific testing. One of the biggest things she did was she did carbon-14 testing of the papyrus. And the date that came back was that the piece of papyrus itself, the writing surface, was from the 8th century AD. Now, interestingly, Harvard sort of winds up celebrating that as, aha, we have proof that this is an ancient papyrus. And, and they tout that in, in their press release in 2014. The trouble is that this is not really a knock on the arguments of the critics. The critics always believe that the papyrus writing material itself was ancient, but that someone had obtained a blank scrap of papyrus and written on it with ink manufactured with the same simple recipe today that the ancients used. So that was problem number one. Number two, the 8th century historically presents a problem for the papyrus because Dr. Karen King's initial theory was that the gospel of Jesus' wife, if such a thing had existed, would have been initially written in the 2nd century AD and that the papyrus itself, because of certain features on it, suggested that it was actually written on this papyrus in the 4th century AD. And that would make a kind of sense because there were still debates in the 4th century about what would make it into the New Testament. By the 8th century... If you have a piece of papyrus from the 8th century, now you're talking about early Islamic Egypt. And you're also talking about a time when uh, the Coptic Christian church is fully Orthodox. Now you have a question of what would be considered a heretical gospel circulating in Islamic Egypt at a time when the Christians there are fully Orthodox. Maybe there's a good historical answer for that, but it wasn't an answer Dr. King engaged with. Instead, she and Harvard simply touted, ah, we have evidence that it's ancient. It really isn't ancient. It's early medieval. And so that creates a problem. And then the other thing that comes back are these scientific tests that say, well, the papyrus itself looks like it's probably hasn't been doctored and the ink is compatible with inks that were manufactured in antiquity. So we don't necessarily know when the ink was put on, but the recipe that appears to have been used is the same kind that would have been used in antiquity. In other words, they didn't find like evidence that someone had used like a Sharpie to write on the papyrus because that has distinct modern chemicals on it. So they found basically what was soot-based ink, which anyone with a candle can make. And so they were able to basically say, we don't find any evidence of modern forgery. That doesn't mean it's authentic, but there are no smoking guns, according to these scientists. Frequently in the story, there's use of specific language to create a vagueness that people often tend to fill in the interpretation they want from it. So saying it's ancient doesn't say that it was made when she claims it was made. It just means that it's really old. Right. And it only applies to the papyrus surface itself. It doesn't tell you anything about when the script on top of that blank papyrus was placed on it. But we do know that it can't have been any earlier than the 8th century. It does establish that. And then, of course, one of the many disclosures and surprises in the book is what I wind up discovering about the scientist who Dr. King commissioned to do these, these studies. There's an epigraph in the book from Raymond Chandler. There's a reference to Dashiell Hammett. And the book really does come across as a detective story. Yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted folks to understand the methods that I used in trying to track all this stuff down. It was not an easy story to report. None of this was handed to me on a platter. There, was, there were no court files to go to. There were no police records. There wasn't like a deep throat source who said, here's what went down. This was a work of fitting together thousands of puzzle pieces that were scattered across the world that often seemed deliberately hidden or hard to find. You know, I knocked on doors of strangers in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland. 
I made cold calls across the world. I spent weeks in the Library of Congress reading every single thing Dr. Karen King had written, pouring over half-century-old German phone books with like, you know, tiny agate type, trying to trace the movements of the various figures in the story, including the mysterious collector, whose life story is absolutely fascinating, who is a dropout of an Egyptology program, who has studied Coptic, who is briefly the director of the Museum of the East German Stasi, who then moves to Florida and becomes an internet pornographer. And so there are all these different strands of the story that take us out sort of across the world. And I guess in, in invoking some of those writers like John le Carré and, 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 and Raymond Chandler, I wanted people to have a sense of the intrigue and the amount of kind of gumshoe, shoe leather investigation that went into telling this wild story. So do you think you're more Sam Spade or Continental Op? <laughs> uh, maybe more, maybe more Columbo. Uh, <laughs> One more thing. Yeah. In authenticating historical objects, the concept of provenance is key. So can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about the beginnings of your search in the provenance of this fragment? Sure. So that, you know, again, that gets back to the, really the beginning of our conversation, which was, you know, who was this individual that this complete stranger that emailed Karen King one day in 2010. And that had always fascinated me. I hadn't been able to adequately pursue it for the Smithsonian story where I was under a tight deadline. But three years later, I approached the Atlantic magazine and I said, look, I still got this question about who this individual is. Will you allow me to go and sort of try to figure that out? It's not going to be easy, but I, I have some leads and I'd like to see what I can find. And so provenance is essentially a fancy word for ownership history. Who is the current owner? Where did he get it from or she get it from? Where did it come from before that and before that and before that? And Dr. King was, had told me, she said, I'd never engaged the provenance questions. And that concerned a lot of scholars for, for the reasons we talked about earlier, which is if you don't know where an object comes from, you don't have all the evidence you need to decide whether it's a forgery or whether it's been looted. So that's what I did. You know, a good part of the book is the detective story, trying to figure out who owns it. And then after having figured that out, dealing with this very slippery individual who lies, who submit, who gives me forgeries, who spins, every single word that comes out of his mouth needs to be fact-checked. And it winds up being this, this sort of cat and mouse game that eventually leads to some of the revelations that, uh, in the book where we learn just sort of shocking things about this individual's past and history and that I think are absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And this one person talks with you time and again for many, many hours. Were you surprised that someone who could be in kind of a compromised position just talked that much? It's unusual. I mean, I've been an investigative reporter for a fairly long time, or at least, you know, I've done investigative stories. And, you know, sometimes many people will just hang up the phone. Like they don't want to comment. Sure, you've got the goods, you've got the evidence, you're going to report them. They say no comment, they hang up the phone. But this individual kept talking and talking to me. And I think that that's common for certain kind of, you know, I believe con artist in which you believe that you're so confident in your own abilities to talk your way out of a situation because it's worked for you for so much of your life that you feel that there's greater advantage in trying to spin and use misdirection and falsehood to sort of boggle or muddy the waters with a reporter who thinks he's got a good story than to simply hang up. This individual is very confident. He's very smart. He's very well read. Maybe it was probably the right thing in some ways, in his mind, certainly, to try to continue to engage me to sort of like try to cast doubt or undermine the things that I thought I was finding, but never in an aggressive way. He was always very low key. It was always a soft sell. It was the kind of thing where he always tried to sound very reasonable about what he was telling you. But after spending many hours with him, you could see the subtle ways in which his stories kept shifting. The dates changed. He always couched everything he told you with, with words like probably, or I think, or I'd have to go check. So that he always gave himself wriggle room to sort of unstick himself from a certain story if that story turned out to be bogus. And so it was a very interesting and long relationship I had over the phone with this individual as I was trying to determine the truth behind these headlines that turned the world on its head for a few minutes back in, in 2012. A few years ago, I interviewed Hanan Tigay about the Lost Book of Moses which looks at these forgeries of the book of Deuteronomy in the 19th century by a guy named Moses Shapira. And one of his motivations seemed to have been that he wanted the approval of the world of academia. And it seems that that's not completely off the mark here either. It's one of the many pieces of evidence I want readers to consider in deciding what motivates this individual. So certainly he was someone who had aspirations in, in Egyptology, had a conflict with a professor at the Free University in Berlin. The professor accused him of 
plagiarizing his ideas and, and then he sort of washed out of the program. But it's more than that in, in his case. You know, he is also an individual who claims to have been sexually abused by a priest when he was a boy in southern Germany, who has a, a grudge against the Catholic Church and the idea of priestly celibacy, which he partly blames for the scourge of clergy pedophilia. He is also somebody whose own personal life and the kind of internet porn that he and his wife perform also sort of deify women uh, and also desecrate them at the same time. His wife, who is the star of what was once a very popular internet pornography site, also moonlights as a medium. She believes that she channels the voices of angels and she self-published a book of what she calls automatic writing and what she claims was dictated to her by the archangel Michael. So there are ways in which their own lives have this kind of crosshatch of theology and sexuality that finds expression in the papyrus. So I, again, I really feel like motivations are, are super hard to pin down. I give readers a lot of material to work with, I think, but I think I want to leave to them the thrill of, of discovery and coming to their own conclusions about what it is that leads this man to decide to either produce and or present to Karen King this remarkable piece of text. So did any money ever change hand for the papyrus? So has there been a crime perpetrated? There was no money that, that changed hands. I think the individual whose name is Walter Fritz, I can say that it's in the book and I've talked about it elsewhere. Walter Fritz is the owner of the papyrus. He had hoped to donate the, the Gospel of Jesus' wife papyrus to Harvard in exchange for Harvard's purchase of the rest of his collection. And so it would have been the controversial one, the, the forgery is donated, but then Harvard buys these other papyri that are sort of boring, documentary papyri, things like ancient tax receipts, business accounts, uh, ancient letters, some of which are, are deemed to be authentic. So it was a sort of a, potentially a tricky transaction. Dr. King was willing to go for this, but Harvard said, no thanks. If he wants to loan us the Jesus' wife papyrus, we'll keep it here for study, but we're not going to buy the rest of his collection. So there is a question of might he face any legal liability? I think that's a question I'm, I don't have the, the expertise to answer. Another development in the story very recently, which I, I was able to confirm for the first time about a week and a half ago, is that the gospel of Jesus' wife is now in the possession of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. In Egypt, an official in the Ministry of Antiquities, a friend of his had seen a documentary about the gospel of Jesus' wife, like an eight-year-old documentary online he happened to discover, and said, oh, we've never heard of this papyrus before. We would like information about it. They put in a request with the United States saying, you know, can you tell us what information you have about this papyrus? So the agency charged with investigating those kinds of requests is the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, so last year, DHS seized the papyrus from Harvard, one more twist in the story, and is now investigating the whole environment around Walter Fritz. Now, make very clear here, when I interviewed its top antiquities official, it's like, oh, we have no record of this ever having existed. We don't know whether it's real or not. We just saw a documentary. We're very aggressive about requesting things that look Egyptian, and certainly all ancient papyri come from Egypt. So even if it's just the, the material the, the fake was written on Egyptian, Egypt could legitimately have a claim for it, which they have not made yet. It's still under investigation. Egypt may decide they want it, may decide they don't. But there is one place where potentially there could be liability for Walter Fritz if, for instance, and we don't know this for a fact, but if, for instance, Walter Fritz stole the papyri in his collection, including potentially blank scraps from another collection, or if he illegally imported them from Egypt, there he would be more likely to face liability than on charges, for instance, of forgery, because he never sold the forgery. So that probably doesn't count as fraud. But a good lawyer, I don't know what kind of case they could make. It would be really funny if they repatriated a fraud, though. It would, but it would not be the first time. There's a great scholar, uh, Dr. Aaron Thompson, an art crime professor at the John Jay College of Law in New York, who's written a really interesting article called Official Fakes, which is about the history of the repatriations of fakes to countries that request papyri or ancient objects. Quite frequently, there will be fakes mixed in with authentic material. And oftentimes the countries will just say, give me all of it. And the fakes get repatriated with everything else. So it, it would certainly not be the first time. So will that information make it into the paperback version of Veritas? I'm really hoping, but I don't think DHS has any interest in what my deadlines are. Um, <laughs> they're working on their own timetable. And, and when they make a decision about forfeiture, they'll make that decision. Then Egypt, of course, then has to decide whether they want to intervene and say, hey, you know, actually, we would like to make a claim for these. So I would really, really like to include it in the paperback. Certainly it would be in some later edition of the book because I do want readers to have that final chapter. And I've already discussed it in Q&As with The Atlantic Magazine. And, and certainly, if there's anything interesting to report, I'd hope to do that through The Atlantic or some other publication. Do you have another book project lined up, or are you working on a magazine piece that you can tell us about? 
you know, at this point, I'm just thinking about the next three days, <laughs> like all of us in, in this particular moment. But I remain interested in the ways in which the past intersects with the present, the ancient past, and the way in which people sort of weaponize or use the past to advance certain arguments, modern arguments. That's something that continues to interest me. As an investigative reporter, I try not to say too much about specific stories I'm working on, but that general area continues to fascinate me. Well, Ariel, I want to thank you so much for coming on Book Talk today and sharing Veritas with us. Well, thanks so much for the great questions. I enjoyed it. Ariel Sabar is the author of Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife, which is published by Doubleday. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.